You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In Changor, Zula had begun to recognize something that she had also seen in Peter, and indeed that probably accounted for her having been attracted to Peter in the first place. Neither of these men had much in the way of formal education, since each had decided during his late teens to simply go out into the world and begin doing something, and each of them had found his way from there, sometimes with good and sometimes with bad results. Consequently, Neither had much in the way of money or prestige, but each had a kind of confidence about him that was not often found in young men who had followed the recommended path through high school to college and postgraduate training. If she had wanted to be cruel or catty about it, Zula might have likened those meticulously groomed boys to overgrown fetuses waiting endlessly to be born which was absolutely fine given that the universities were well stocked with fetal women. But perhaps because of her background in refugee camps and the premature death of her adoptive mother, she could not bring herself to be interested in those men. This quality that she had seen in Peter and now saw in Shangor was, and she flinched from the word, but there seemed little point in trying to distance herself from it through layers of self-conscious irony, masculine and along with it came both good and bad. She saw the same quality in some of the men of her family, most notably Uncle Richard, and what she knew of him was that he was basically a good man, that he had done some crazy shit, hurt some people, felt bad about it, that he had gotten lucky, that he would die to protect her, and that his relations with women overall had not gone well. Neil Stevenson is the author of the novels Zodiac, Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, Cryptonomicon, the Baroque trilogy consisting of Quicksilver, The Confusion, and The System of the World, and Anathem, and a collection of essays in The Beginning Came the Command Line. His new book is Reem D. Thank you for joining me, Neil. It's good to be here. Neil, I have to guess you had a hell of a good time writing this book. It's really a lot of fun. <laughs> This one was uh, uh, just, it was about kind of playing with plot, uh, not a lot of um, heavy research, not a lot of trying to uh, envision uh, imaginary futures, just writing a book that happens in the world that we live in today. This is a, a novel set in the virtual world, in part, that has to do with the way that the um, exchanges between the virtual world, online world, and the real world happen. So talk about developing the gaming environment and creating the gaming company that's kind of at the center of this novel. Well, uh, I first heard about the practice of gold farming several years ago. It's hard to believe that this exists, but it really does. It's, it's people typically in places like China who play online games and accumulate virtual property, so gold pieces or magical weapons or whatever that are of value in the uh, the virtual world of the game, and then sell them for hard currency to players in the West who have money but who don't have enough time to go out and get that stuff themselves. And when I first heard that, that this was was going on, I just couldn't couldn't believe it, but it turns out to be a, 
a very large industry. It's on the order of billions of dollars a year, last time I checked. And these are real-world dollars, not virtual dollars. That's right. That's right. You're not supposed to do it, but people have come up with ways to, uh, to sort of transfer money using hard currency to pay for these things. So that was one of those things I kind of stored away as, as, as being novel-worthy. Mm-hmm. someday. And then another thing that like that that I'd been carrying around in my head for a few years was just the whole phenomenon of viruses. We had a few incidents a number of years ago where some kid in the Philippines or whatever would would write a computer virus that would just sweep across the world in a matter of hours or days and cause all kinds of havoc. And um, so what I'm doing in this book is is putting those two phenomena together. There's a a, a kid who's he's one of these gold farmers uh, in China, and he gets tired of, of making his living that way, and he comes up with this virus, uh, w- which holds your files for ransom. And the way that uh, you pay the ransom is by going to a particular place in the virtual world and leaving uh, some gold pieces on the ground for to be picked up by a troll. This novel um, has an interesting spin on what a practice often done in science fiction, which is you alluded to, called world building. Um, normally, in science fiction novels, the author creates a world. You've got a novel in which you build the world of world building for online games. And I really like that you're, uh, the meticulousness with which your characters approach this uh, problem. It, they take it from the, uh, from the ground up, literally, uh, addressing first the geology of the, of the planet and the whole history and, se- and, and a sense of each grain of dirt. Yeah, I studied some geography when I was in college and, and was really interested in, in cartography, you know, map making, and played around a little bit when I was younger with trying to generate imaginary landforms using fractals. Uh, I never became terribly sophisticated at that, but it was always kind of an intriguing problem. And so I guess I put a little bit of my my younger self into the book uh, in the person of a character um, named Pluto, who is a a young man who, uh, as they say now, is on the spectrum. He's an autism spectrum disorder kind of guy who uh, happens to be brilliant at writing code that will generate realistic artificial landforms. So pretty early in the development of Corporation 9592, they hire this guy and put him to work building the virtual world in which the, uh, in which the game is played. Now, the, the, this game is the brainchild of Richard Forthrast, and what his, his innovation is to make the gold farming a basic part of the understructure of the game. Yeah, the the way it is now in the real world is that gold farming and and hard currency transfers are not sanctioned. And so the companies that run games like this make active efforts to stamp them out. And I think the Chinese government is making at least some of these things illegal. So right now, all of that kind of activity exists outside of the officially sanctioned structures of the game. According to the fictional premise of, of Reem D's plot, what's different about the, the, the game of terrain created by Richard Forthrast is, as you say, that they, they build the gold farming phenomenon into the guts of the game from the very beginning because uh, they know that uh, it's going to be colonized in large numbers 
by young people in places like China. Anyway, and so why not just accept that and, and put your arms around that and, and make it into a, a basic feature of how the game works? Now, you have come up with a, a an interesting phrase called bothaviors. Yeah, bothaviors. Bothaviors, okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about bothaviors. In games like this, when you when you go into the game world in a, a game like World of Warcraft, your your character sort of materializes in some part of the world, and then uh, you you control the character's movements until you log out. At which point, it just kind of disappears. And so, uh, again, what I'm doing here is imagining what a next generation game might look like. And so, uh, in this game, the way it works is that. Uh, since it seems kind of unrealistic to have characters shimmering in and out of existence, depending on whether their owners are logged in, in terrain, when you log out, your character just goes into a kind of automaton-like behavior called a bot behavior, which means that it's just acting out a little program. If it's a a, a gold mining character, it just goes back to, to mining gold. If it's a... Uh, a warrior character, uh, it might engage in some kind of training. Uh, if it's a, a, a mage or a, a, a cleric, maybe it, uh, it meditates to increase the, the magical power of that, of that character. But it never, just, uh, it never just disappears. At the heart of this book is the Forthrast family, and I really like these people. And I think one of the uh, great creations of this book, this is like a really nice uh, tapestry of connections between all the characters, and, and you've worked out some really beautiful plot points to, to draw them through a really exciting plot that also shows us a lot of the world today. So tell us a little bit about creating the Forthrast family. Um, Richard Forthrast is the our, our first uh, entree into the book. Richard is a man in his uh, middle 50s. He grew up on a farm with his older brother, John. Their dad was a World War II hero. Um, they had a typical Iowa farm upbringing. John was drafted, went to Vietnam, had his legs blown off. Richard didn't want to do that, so he uh, went to Canada, got a job as a hunting guide, had some adventures, got into some scrapes in that business, found himself in possession of an illegal grizzly bear pelt, which he strapped to his back and carried south along the Selkirk Crest from British Columbia into northern Idaho. Along the way, rediscovering an old route that had been used during Prohibition by whiskey smugglers and found a, a place that he dubbed Prohibition Crick, Crick being how we say the word creek in Iowa. And since the hunting guide thing wasn't working out for him, he uh, became a marijuana smuggler and uh, made a lot of money carrying uh, marijuana from B.C. down the, 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 same, the same route into the States. So um, that was how he spent his kind of, uh, his younger years. He um, uh, acquired a piece of property in uh, in British Columbia that he fancied and built a lodge there, which uh, became a legitimate business. And finding himself with a lot of time on his hands, he then went on to become obsessed with games and to found Corporation 9592 and, and create the, the game of terrain. Now, you the first uh, 
part of this novel to fall into place for you was the, this idea of gold farming. So you have that hanging out there, and then you have this idea of the viruses hanging out there. I'd like you to talk about um, the actual process of you know creating the prose. Did you just like start at the beginning there in the first scene and kind of figure it out? or uh, Because the plot in this novel is really totally engrossing and really complicated and very satisfying for readers. So I'm wondering, did this, Thank you. Did this grow out of uh, um, just word from word one to word... Uh, 350,000. <laughs> what I have learned over time is that it it pays off in the end to just write sequentially, to mm-hmm. s- start with the first word of the first chapter and, and write all the way through to the end uh, and not jump around. And sometimes it's frustrating and it feels slow because you might be kind of stuck on a tough part and but but maybe there's a really fun part coming up and so the temptation is to jump ahead and write the really fun part and save the tough part for later but that doesn't always work out and so this was one that I just wrote sequentially I knew that certain things were going to happen involving this virus that I spoke of and uh, some action some kind of you know thriller type action plot points that were going to happen around that I knew I was going to get to that stuff eventually, but I also felt that if I just went straight there without first setting up some characters that the reader would actually be interested in, that it would feel kind of uh, hollow and empty. So the, I started, I tried to start with uh, characters and, and kind of develop the, the relationships and the background of the story before uh, so putting the pedal to the metal. That's one of the things I think that makes this book so rich and so rewarding on on a couple levels because we are really engrossed by the characters. And it's a a book that makes me think that um, so many books that you might describe as thrillers are all about um, the destination. Yeah. but well, as readers, we're really interested in the journey. Otherwise, we just read the end of the book, and that would be it. And that's what makes this book so pleasurable. And and one of the things that makes all of your books pleasurable is your prose. And Thanks. it's really um, fun. It's engaging and uh, very um, enlightening. You you tell us all sorts of great things. So does this come out again? Does this come out the first time perfect, or, or when you like write after? When you write your first day's work, do you rewrite it 10 times on the way there? In this case, um, well, I don't know if it ever gets <clears throat> gets perfect, but uh, in this case, I uh, was actually trying to, to pull back a little bit on, on prose style. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my earlier books, the prose, uh, I'm, I'm happy uh, with the results, but but the, the prose can sometimes feel like I'm, I'm trying a little too hard um, to, to make it poetic, to make it flashy, to put in um, what we call special effects into the, the prose. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But uh, in this case, as I mentioned before, I, I really wanted to concentrate more on, on plot and on sort of character development and not just try to blow people away with super amazing prose. So it's um, it's it's more just kind of straightforward, tell the story type stuff with a few, I suppose, a few occasional digressions into, into more poetic material. Well, one of the things I think that makes this novel so enjoyable for uh, me as a reader is um, 
while, while you might describe this in many ways, it has lots of thrilling parts, and I want to address some of that. I think to me it feels more like the kind of really rich Russian novel. I mean, mm. there's a as much war and peace as this as there is any kind of action thriller, and that's because we're so involved with the characters. And it comes to me for this from this feeling of connectedness that you develop. As we meet all these characters, you know, sometimes when we first uh, meet Azula, I, you don't really know if she's going to, like, ever occur again. And, and she proves to be a major character. And the way you kind of build that up and build her up and engage us in who she is, I think is really skillful. And, I, and I'm wondering how much of this you know in advance and how far you know in advance. I mean, how how far ahead are you on the, uh, the wave that you're surfing as you uh, write this book? I think that the knitting together that you're describing is something that kind of develops organically as as the story is written. If uh, th- that kind of thing is quite difficult to anticipate or really plan out in advance, and I think that that if one did try to plan it out, it would probably come off as a bit stilted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's one of those things that seems to happen of its own accord and the way to help it happen is to just start by uh, coming up with some characters and trying to give them um, a point of view and some personalities and some background and then set the plot in motion and then as that plot develops you can see how those people are going to uh, uh, react to what's happening around them, how they're going to interact with each other, how their personalities are going to clash or, or blend in different situations. And and those connections that you're talking about just sort of grow up in a, a kind of natural and, or, and organic way. Well, that's, I think, uh, what makes this book so good. And you have a lot of characters in this book. And even though you have a lot of characters, as readers, we remember them all. They're all very striking, and you do a great job of bringing them up. And I'm talking about characters who show up on page 300, you know, 600. And that's a kind of a, a risky thing. As a writer, you know, if around page 600, you're, you're still introducing new characters who are going to play a major part in the plot. Don't you feel like a little bit uh, that you're taking a risk or, you know, is this something that you you just go okay he here 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 he is here's Seamus <laughs> uh, a, a little bit I mean there's because of the nature of the book there's mm-hmm. also a somewhat high attrition rate and so <laughs> it's necessary to to bring up reinforcements uh, so it doesn't you know turn into a solo quest I don't know I mean that's how it is in in real life right mm-hmm. you, I mean you may feel that you're in the middle of of uh, a, a a story, you know, a chapter out of your life, and it happens all the time that somebody will suddenly show up uh, and um, and become part of that story. And so, uh, for me, it's almost a matter of uh, verisimilitude to to include those kinds of events. And there's a great line early on because you have a very interest. Story is really important to this plot, as you say. Plot is important, but I think of it. Not so much plot in terms of things happening, but in just this sense of story. And early on, uh, Richard thinks the only way to make sense of what he was now was to tell the story of how he'd gotten that way. And I think that's really kind of the gist of this entire novel in many ways. Well, I, I think that humans are kind of wired to uh, 
process things in the form of stories. We're a narrative species. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that's a, a very deep and old kind of evolutionary thing. And so, uh, and, and um, very often, if I'm put in a position of having to explain something complicated uh, or communicate something that's hard to communicate, um, I'll be kind of stuck for an answer uh, until I can figure out some way to just start at the beginning and tell it as a story. Well, that's one of the things that makes this book uh, so interesting because we have there are so many stories that kind of begin in it. Now, one of the stories that uh, takes place in this, and that's pretty surprising, is we we meet some terrorists in this book, and um, when we meet them, they're charming, <laughs> they're funny, they're very dangerous, and they kill people without a qualm. But the way it's written, it's not disturbing or scary or monstrous the way we've seen terrorists in any other book. These are terrorists who are driving an RV across <laughs> and stopping at Walmart. <laughs> well, the yeah, I don't know what those people are actually like, but uh, I do know that monstrous characters can become, to me, they, they kind of take me out of the, the story because mm -hmm. I just don't think that there are really that many people like that in, in the world. At some level, <clears throat> these people are humans, and they may be doing horrible things, but uh, they're going to have a sense of humor. They're going to have human reactions. They're going to uh, engage in conversations like other people do. To me, it, it, it's, it's more effective in, in a storytelling process to, um, to depict them as such rather than as kind of something outside of, of humanity. I, there are one. I think one of the things that's clear in this book, and I think really striking, when you finish it, is you read this whole book and you think, you know, not only did I like every character in this book, but I get the feeling the author liked every character in this book, and that makes this a really enjoyable book to read. There are even though our pe there are people who are doing bad things, there are no per se bad guys that you just say, oh, this person's completely hateful, and I wish he just get killed. Well, one of the of odd personality traits of fiction writers is that we can see things from just about anybody's point of view. And it, it can almost make fiction writers sometimes seem a little bit disturbing or, uh, or, or, or malformed uh, in that you can point one of us at just about any human being, no matter how depraved or weird they are, and with a little bit of, of, of thought and kind of observation, uh, we can say, oh, yeah, I, I see where he's going. I get it. I, I, and, and we can put ourselves in the, the shoes of that person. Sometimes it would probably be you know, safer and more helpful for us to be a little more judgmental. But I, I think sometimes we actually get ourselves into to bad situations um, because we're too busy being fascinated and not making enough judgments. Well, I think that's actually what makes this book very interesting. I'm, I was wondering if, as you were writing this book, you were, were you know, uh, anticipating some kind of uh, blowback from because you've portrayed these uh, terrorists as human beings. Well, I think that people who are inclined to take that stance uh, probably aren't going to be reading the, the book, frankly. <laughs> so... 
That would be a kind of political sort of conversation, mm-hmm. which you know I, I, I hope to avoid. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book is that since it's set around terrain and this um, this virtual world, this is a, a, a business that that is based in storytelling. Yes. So that's one of the things I think that makes the the, the plot really turn. This is a story about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the runnings of comic subplots in the book is that the Corporation 9592, having gotten Pluto to build the physical structure of the world, realized that they needed people. They needed a history. They needed cultures. They needed context in which uh, the events of the, the game were going to be set. And so they went out and started hiring fantasy writers. So there's two fantasy writers uh, in the book, one of whom is just a pulp machine. He just hammers out enormous numbers of pulp fantasy novels. And the other one's a very prestigious kind of Tolkien-like writer of high literary fantasy. And so naturally they're at odds with each other before anyone even asks. the These two characters are uh, essentially both of them are basically self-parody. They're kind of like the angel and the devil that sit on my shoulders all day long. <laughs> I, yeah, I was um, I was uh, interested by the fact uh, because you're well known for your world building and you're really good at it, and you really do take uh, have a lot of fun uh, uh, in a sort of self satiric mode, um, uh, recasting yourself as as two different kinds of fantasy writers. That, you know, kind of Kilgore tra- the between Kilgore Trout and uh, J.R. Tolkien, <laughs> put him down for a smackdown. Yeah, so so the the two of them are are sort of trying to pull the world in opposite directions, I guess you could say. The only thing that they have in common is just that they're both just fantastically prolific, and so they, the way that they sort of fight this war is by just hammering out vast amounts of material. You know, also too, you you. Uh, Talk about um, uh, a lot of uh, Richard's characterization kind of uh, comes keeps coming back to his Wikipedia entry and his kind of story in there, and I thought that was uh, interesting that you know that we're now kind of uh, def- defined by those outside of ourselves who tell the story our stories for us. Richard's. Wikipedia entry becomes a kind of running joke in the the book, and and people are always consulting it and getting various bits of right or wrong information out of it. And he's he's spends some time kind of meditating on it and and wondering who the hell these people are who are contributing to this thing. It's kind of you know mysterious voices uh, coming out of the internet saying things about him that sometimes are are wrong and sometimes are right and uh and even when they're right sometimes strike him as being just completely beside the point you know um with a a novel with so many really uh just characters we really love us uh, Sokolov, um uh Seamus uh uh Olivia we, there's just this great cast of characters and I don't want to really give away um, the plot points that they're all involved with. But I'd like you to talk about um, giving them each the right level of detail so that we know them and um, 
did you ever find yourself saying, oh, my God, I've got to bring Olivia in 50 pages earlier? Or did you, or were you really able to stick to that kind of chronological deployment? No, the, I, I think that that fell together in a, a reasonably controlled way this time. Uh, sometimes characters will uh, do things you're not expecting, and usually it's good to go with that. Uh, usually it's a sign that something good is happening in the, the, the creative process. In this case, uh, I think I've just been doing this long enough by this point that, I don't know, I just kind of uh, have a sense of, of when it's time to bring somebody in and, and when that is going to contribute to the uh, story as opposed to uh, creating a distraction or, or forcing me to uh, suddenly disgorge a big hunk of, of uh, exposition, <laughs> which I do on a regular basis, by the way. So I've gotten some some complaints from people I love and respect that there's places in the book where they just want to find out what happens next instead of reading the biographical uh, sketch of uh, somebody who just got introduced. But, oh, I actually kind of like, you know, I think that's... Uh, this book I is it's a big book. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's over a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you set forth to read a book like that, it's not like you're going to read a two hundred, three hundred page flip through it kind of thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a piece of architecture, and that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about the book are these. There are little uh, like frescoes within the book that you know we can kind of uh, dwell in and live in for a little while and do you kind of do those just come to you or do you set, in terms of like balancing those with the plot and the pacing well here you're asking me to to engage in more self-examination than is is my want so um <laughs> the uh i'm not sure exactly how it happens but what frequently happens with me is that I'll get up I will have my coffee I'll go to work and continue the story where I left off the day before. And um, and that's a fairly predictable process. I mean, I know what has to happen next. And then I stop uh, when I feel like I'm getting tired, and then I go do something else. And w- what tends to happen with me is that for about half an hour or an hour after I've stopped, which is usually in late morning, I'll have these little aftershocks. So I'll be driving somewhere or making coffee or something and uh, something will occur to me that doesn't necessarily fit directly into what I was just writing but it's just a little observation or a sentence or an idea and I've just this happens predictably enough that I've just gotten in the habit of of keeping a uh, well I used to keep a voice recorder with me now I just use the the voice memo feature on my phone and I'll just whip it out, and I'll, I'll just recite whatever's on my mind into that. And and a lot of those seem to develop into the, the the bits that you're referring to. Now, at the beginning of this novel, you know, I'm reading a Neil Stevenson novel, and they're generally kind of futuristic or um, artistic, and you know, uh, kind of odd in some way. And this begins with a family reunion in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with a lot of guns. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of odd, you know. No proves to not be the case. Guns, <laughs> a lot of guns in this novel. So do you have a lot of guns at home now? I wouldn't say I have a lot, but um, it's, you know, it's a, 
it, it's a fairly common uh, behavior, maybe not among kind of literary, what you'd normally think of as literary culture or sort of maybe blue statey people, but uh, but it's people in this country, you know, have a a, a tendency to own and, and use firearms. Uh, I I do so occasionally. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't uh, devote a great deal of, of, of time to it myself, um, but but it's certainly a, a, a common uh, sort of pastime, let's say. And I thought it made for an interesting way of introducing this family because mm-hmm. uh, overtly it's kind of shocking in, in, in the way that you have just described. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like not horrifying, but just it's kind of startling to see a, a, a family that's just out in a cow pasture blasting away with, with guns. But but then uh, as you get to know them a little bit, you can see that they're just a family. They just happen to have this this pastime. Those aren't the last guns we see. Those are maybe the first ones, but they're certainly not the last. Yeah, they, they come back later. Um, uh, one of the things that you do very effectively in this book, there are some amazing set pieces that for us as readers unfold over, you know, long long passages of prose where you really create these huge big scenes and move people around. Um, did you travel to China, to, to uh, Yemen, Ximen? Xiamen. Xiamen. Uh, tr- that's not the correct pronunciation Xiamen. either, but it's <laughs> slightly closer maybe than, than yours. I, I don't really know how to say it because uh, I, I can't do the, the tonal thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I went there. Uh, I'm terrible at traveling alone. If I travel alone, I tend to just sit in my hotel room and stare at my laptop. But um, I, I went there with uh, with Charles Mann, mm-hmm. who... Uh, was working on his book 1493, which is out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he's a much better traveler than I am, and so when I heard he was going, and I had a great uh, translator to help him out, I'm gonna make some noise here and uh, let me, yeah, Josh Daluisio Guerreri, who is an American living in in Taiwan. I decided to just go and hang out with those guys because I didn't care where in China it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I specifically wanted it to be a kind of you know, not Beijing, mm-hmm. not Shanghai, uh, a, a, a city that maybe a lot of people hadn't heard of in this country. So I was able to just tag along with those guys and kind of soak up a few ideas and kind of get a picture of the place. Did you take pictures and work from photographs, or did you just kind of did you draw sketches, or did you just uh, look at stuff and go, okay? Yeah, I I took a lot of pictures for reference, mm-hmm. but in general, I try to control that urge. If I am visiting a place to do novel research, um, I find that it's very important to process everything in the word part of the brain and not the image part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And so if there's, you know, some especially complex uh, piece of imagery that I want to capture, I'll, I'll take a picture of it. Uh, it's sort of as a way of, of taking notes. It's much more important to write things down. So you take notes and write down Yeah, I, I use the voice recorder thing. 
Mm. Now, um, one of the things that I found really uh, entertaining about this was your your sense of uh, of pacing and scope, and just the the way you would uh, the 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 various plot points you developed. There are so many great plot points. Thank you for putting a cron job as a plot point. All <laughs> Unix sysadmins in the world. <laughs> We all send our thanks. It's uh, my my pleasure. Glad to be of service. <laughs> now, but there are also lots of other really interesting plot points. You use kind of a business science to a degree as as a plot point that the way the business turns drives the plot of the book, which I think is a really interesting way of developing your plot, and it and it's a perfect way to address uh, life in the twenty first century. Yeah, well, you know, people who succeed in business. Um, have to know about a lot of things and have to be able to manage many different aspects of the business. But uh, at, at the end of the day, they they tend to be quite aware of, of the bottom line and to, to keep a clear eye on how what they do sort of eventually is going to flow through into that. And Richard's one of those guys. So he's always kind of thinking in those terms and, and maybe a little exasperated with some of his, you know, brilliant, creative uh, employees who are having so much fun doing what they do that they may kind of lose sight of, of that stuff. Yeah, it's what's interesting is that Richard and Zula both kind of exhibit different kinds of manipulative behavior to get things going in their own uh, for themselves in a way that um, you know it, it's not off-putting. And I, I like the way you managed to make that, that these people are, are just out and out manipulating those around them, but in a manner that seems kind of sensible and pragmatic. Well, it's almost a semantic thing, right? We're always in, encouraging people to develop their e- emotional intelligence uh, and to have, have good social skills. And that all sounds really nice. If you want to take a, a very cynical view of that, you could say it's just another form of manipulation. Hmm. And vice versa. You know, too, in this book, one of the things that uh, we don't often see in books is are the difficulties of getting around in this modern world. And there's a a huge range of difficulty that um, that these people experience, right? So so Richard flies around on a, a business jet. He can go anywhere in the world on very short notice. Without having to check in at the airport, you know, he has this completely zipless travel experience, whereas there's other people at various points in the story who find it extremely difficult and dangerous to, to travel even a, a few yards through a, a, a crowded city in the middle of a disaster or through a sort of combat zone or whatever. I think that's really interesting. And, and I'd like you to talk just a little bit about writing those prose parts and, you know, uh, putting those into the, the – weaving those into the plot of the book because I think that's what gives this book um, that kind of uh, almost Tolstoy-esque feel to it that we're really – really immerse us in every aspect of the way we have to live now, not just um, in, the, in the blowing stuff up <laughs> aspect. Well, uh, a thriller, I, I think, ends up being largely about nuts and bolts matters of you know, people in desperate situations trying to get certain things done. And so it's, it's a, a key part of writing a thriller is just being able to describe 
those those specifics in a way that that draws the reader in and uh, provides the sense of immersion in the world that at the end of the day is what readers are paying for when they plunk down their money to buy a, a book like this. Well, I'm and uh, <laughs> I while we're talking about travel, I must admit I was glad to see the last hurrah of the Grand Marquis, which I believe <laughs> is uh, they officially announced that they're no longer making those cars anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, they took them off the market because the mileage is so low hmm. that it drags the whole line down. Yeah, well, that's that's Richard's favorite rental car. He he, that's what he always rents at the airport, um, but he does so ironically. You do bring in uh, uh, some nice um, IT points, too. Uh, the the ever-popular um, buffer overflow and also <laughs> uh, determining the physical location of virtual addresses, this kind of direct correlation between the real world and the virtual world. And I think that's a, an important uh, uh, aspect of this novel and of our lives today, too. Well, yeah, there's there's two cases in the book where uh, somebody has to be tracked down in the uh, the real world based on their uh, IP address, their internet protocol address. So, um, so a lot of the plot is about that. Basically, this this kid who writes the virus really irritates someone who decides to, to track him down and get revenge, and so that's that's kind of what gets the. The, the plot rolling is they, they they've got a, an IP address in in Xiamen, China, uh, but that's all they've got, and so they have to go there and uh, see if they can find him. And, and uh, this also speaks a bit to the inequity between the richest, what to us is a priceless artifact, our data, as uh, getting uh, the kid a seventy-three dollar <laughs> ransom. The ransom that that you have to pay if you're infected by this virus is uh, is seventy three dollars. It's it's not just that the the kid doesn't have much money, and so he thinks that seventy three dollars is a lot of money. But he he knows he's going to infect a lot of people with this virus, and so it's actually more of a calculated decision. If the ransom is too high, fewer people might pay it, and he might get in more trouble. But you know maybe nobody's going to make too much of a fuss over over a relatively small amount of money. One of the things that, that is, uh, you do really well, there are a couple of places where you talked about earlier about uh, putting yourself in, as a writer, you can put yourself in anybody's uh, point of view. And there's a couple of really great places where you go back and forth with uh, different points of view of the same set of events. Um, and and I, I really, these are super enjoyable. And are they fun to write? And, and is it something, again, that you kind of have to map out, uh, like with notes or sketches? Or is this just all happening in the word part of your brain? It's it's in the word part. I mean, I, I used to, to do more maps and sketches and tables and diagrams. I, I, I think it ends up being a, a bad idea because if you can't, it, it's, if you do too much of that, it gets you into situations where you're, you have material that is difficult to describe. So then you either describe it poorly or you, you try to plant the, the map or the sketch into the pages of the book. Oddly enough, uh, the, um, the, the phenomenon of audiobooks, uh, which is, as you know, really, really sort of taking off now, has has kind of pushed me away from uh, in, including things that can't be read out Interesting. loud. Yeah. yeah. So so footnotes, for example, are are troublesome. 
I used to put equations in books or diagrams or graphs or whatever. I'm not, it wasn't wrong to do that. I do hear from people who are in the habit of, of say, reading, you know, a, a couple who will, who will read a book to each other mm-hmm. or, or from people who, um, whose main way of, uh, of experiencing literature is, um, is by listening to audio books. Maybe they're dyslexic and so they like to have books read to them. Maybe they have a job as a trucker or a factory worker and and they just like to listen to books all day long. But uh, in, in this one, I just wanted to, to write something that could just be read out loud without having to, to trouble with, uh, okay, what do we do now with this diagram or this footnote? Have you started working on your next book? Oh, just in in the form of some uh, some sketches. I I kind of know what it's going to be, but um, I haven't started production. So can you can you tell us uh, where where it's it's going to be um, a sort of big science fiction book? Well, that sounds like fun. Uh. So back to the the science fiction thing, but uh, you know, uh, as you would expect, lots of lots of characters, lots of uh, Lots of texture in it, I hope. We'll look forward to, to reading that. I've been speaking with Neil Stevenson. His newest book is Reem D. Thank you for joining me, Neil. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.